Part four of George Friedrich Handel by Herbert F. Pieser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Handel appears to have been reluctant to submit such music to the capricious tastes of aristocratic London. So when William Cavendish, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, invited him to visit Dublin and permit the public of that generous and polite nation hear his oratorio, Handel assented at once, the more so because it was a question of assisting three benevolent institutions of Ireland, one of them the Charitable Music Society for the Relief of Imprisoned Debtors. With his usual impulsiveness, he even agreed to present some special oratorio solely for the benefit of the unfortunates jailed for debt, and he was happy to shake the dust of London from his feet for a while. Before starting on his Irish journey, incidentally, he composed in a fortnight part of another oratorio, Samson, based on Milton's Samson Agonistes, and containing that noble air of lament, total eclipse, which was to affect him so poignantly some years later. For his Dublin productions he had two exceptional women singers, Susanna Maria Sibber, also an illustrious tragic actress, and Signora Avolio, a highly trained Italian. The chorus was recruited from Dublin St. Patrick's Cathedral and Christchurch. Messiah did not receive its first hearing until April 13, 1742. Reports emanating from the last rehearsals greatly whetted public appetite, and on the morning of April 13, Faulkner's journal ran the following, This day will be performed Mr. Handel's new grand sacred oratorio called The Messiah. The doors will be opened at 11, and the performance begin at 12. The stewards of the Charitable Music Society request the favor of the ladies not to come with hoops this day to the music hall in Fishamble Street. The gentlemen are desired to come without their swords. Mr. Myers relates that Hendel's polite audience comprised bishops, deans, heads of the college, the most eminent people in the law, as well as the flower of ladies of distinction and other people of the greatest quality. The audience was transported. In some ways the heroine of the occasion was Mrs. Sibber, who sang the air, He Was Despised, with such tenderness and pathos that the Reverend Patrick Delaney, who had harbored a bitter prejudice against actresses and singers, so far forgot himself that he rose and solemnly exclaimed, Woman, for this be all thy sins forgiven thee. It was late in August 1742 before Handel returned to London. The hostility of the English aristocracy was still strong and continued for some years, although the forceful voice of Alexander Pope had been raised in his favor, little as that poet is said to have known about music. But Pope's acknowledged belief in Handel's talent did something toward disarming the composer's enemies. However, he was in no hurry to let London hear Messiah, in spite of all the great things spoken and written about it. Not till February 1743 did Handel plunge once more into the eddies of music-making in the metropolis, not indeed with operatic schemes as of old, but with a plan for a series of subscription concerts at Covent Garden, offering Samson as the first attraction. He took his time before bringing forward Messiah. 
Even before he could advertise it, his hypocritical foes in fashionable circles began a campaign against the profanation and the pious raised loud cries. Clergymen in particular were scandalized at the sacrilege of converting the life and passion of Christ into a theatrical entertainment. Even the idea of printing the word Messiah on a program led Handel to the expedient of announcing his great work simply as a sacred oratorio. At that the embattled clerics tried to enjoin the performance on the ground that Covent Garden Theatre was a place of worldly amusement and that in any case public entertainments during Lent were sacrilegious. However, the sacred oratorio was at last given its first London hearing on March 23, 1743. The composer conducted Signora Avolio, Mrs. Sibber, John Beard, and Thomas Lowe were the chief soloists, and here let us cite once more Robert Manson Meyer's superb study of the masterpiece. As the glorious strains of the Hallelujah Chorus burst upon the awed assemblage, Thick-witted George II found himself so deeply affected by Handel's music, or so eager to shift his position, that he started to his feet with all the spontaneous verve a sixty-year-old gout-ridden monarch could muster. Instantly his phlegmatic courtiers also rose, and since no Englishman may remain seated while his king is standing, the audience at once followed suit thus inaugurating a custom which persists to the present day. Actually, the king's gesture was more a tribute to Handel's impressive music than an instance of exceptional religious devotion. It is a curious indication of public taste that this casual 18th-century fashion has remained for two centuries an inviolable tradition both in England and in America. Even today, thousands who can scarcely distinguish F-sharp from middle C punctiliously observe a custom established by a stupid Hanoverian king and his worldly court two hundred years ago. Thanks to bigotry and organized religiosity, however, Messiah had only three performances in 1743, none in 1744, two in 1745, and none whatever till four years later. Newman Flower recounts that the master, being complimented on the work by a titled hearer, replied, My lord, I should be sorry if I only entertained people. I wish to make them better. Yet as late as 1756, a Miss Catherine Talbot, one of Handel's most devoted admirers, could say that the playhouse is an unfit place for such a solemn performance. However, in the words of Robert Manson Myers, England's early rejection of Messiah may be ascribed as much to personal resentment as to shallow musical taste. Handel flaunted his independence and moved with resolute determination, snapping his fingers in the face of princely patrons and daring to defy the bluest blood in England. What was to be done with this insufferable German upstart, this mere musician, who despite persistent opposition, succeeded in discharging his debts to the utmost farthing? Chosen leaders of British quality resolved to crush Handel at once. They devised a systematic campaign to boycott his oratorios, and no scheme proved too petty for the gratification of their spite. Vain Resolve for Handel, 
crushed, had a most persistent habit of rising again. If political cabals brought him low, the tides of national politics brought him to the top once more. Messiah, to be sure, was not to become an unshakable British, shall we not rather say Anglo-Saxon, monument till after the composer's death. Yet Handel was able to make the most, creatively, of the great national emergencies of his last decade. In 1743, as composer of music to the Chapel Royal, he wrote a Te Deum and an anthem to celebrate the victory of Dettingen, music that conquered the popular heart. To this period belongs the charming secular oratorio Simile, source of the beloved airs Where'er You Walk and O oh Sleep, Why Dost Thou Leave Me, at the first production of which Mrs. Delaney found it significant that there was no disturbance in the playhouse. But the old habit of launching operatic or concert enterprises was upon him once more, and again threatened to consume his credit and his substance bankruptcy threatened other oratorios hercules belshazzar grand masterpieces both of them were given in seventeen forty five to dwindling audiences handel's health was imperiled then came seventeen forty five the jacobite rising and the landing in scotland of the pretender charles edward there was consternation which culminated in the march of the highlander army on london Loyally, the composer identified himself with the national cause. To celebrate the early defeats of the Jacobites, he wrote the occasional oratorio, a call to Englishmen to resist the invader. But this occupies a less considerable niche in history than Judas Maccabeus, next to Messiah, perhaps, the most popular of Handel's oratorios, unless we choose to set above it the earlier Israel in Egypt to Robert Schumann, the model of a choral work. Judas Maccabeus, the text of which a certain divine, Thomas Morell, had based on the Old Testament, was set by Handel between July 9 and August 11, 1746, was produced by Handel at Covent Garden, April 1, 1747. The composer was extraordinarily attuned to the emotional mood of the moment, People saw in the heroic Judas an embodiment of the victorious Duke of Cumberland, who had ferociously scattered the hosts of the Pretender. And the Jews of London, proud of the glorification of their warrior hero of old, rallied to Handel's support and packed the theatre in such numbers that the composer suddenly found himself with a wholly new public at his feet which to some degree replaced for a time to come the aristocratic patrons he had lost. In the martial heroic score of Judas Maccabeus, Handel had incorporated some music he had originally designed for other works. See The Conquering Hero Comes, probably the best-known chorus in the oratorio, had originally been a part of Joshua, and was not heard in Judas Maccabeus till a year after its first production. Even the chorus, Zion Now Her Head Shall Raise, was a later addition and had not been composed till after Handel had lost his sight. This is the place to comment briefly on Handel's borrowings, about which so much ado has been made that one writer went so far as to allude to him as the grand old thief. 
it is altogether too easy to lay a disproportionate stress on the practice involved, the more so as it was a fairly legitimate custom in the 18th century. Besides Handel, masters like Bach, Haydn, Gluck, Mozart, and even Beethoven had a way, more or less frequently, of taking their own where they found it. Often, indeed, they found it in their own earlier creations. In any case, no moral or ethical question was involved, for the good reason that the treatment of a theme or a melody, according to the aesthetic of that period, mattered far more than the phrase in question. Handel, when told of some passage from another composer found in his music, had a way of retorting, the pig did not know what to do with such a theme. Then, too, he adapted to broader purposes music he had conceived earlier in other connections. Messiah, for instance, offers many cases in point. The chorus, his yoke is easy, his burden is light, was adapted for better or worse from an Italian duet composed originally to the words Quel fior che al abarida, the great for unto us a child is born, was a madrigal denouncing blind love and cruel beauty. Thus, no di voi no vo fidormi, while all we like sheep have gone astray, was at first the Italian duet so peprova i vostri ignani the great ensemble and with his stripes employs the same fugal subject which bach put to use in the a minor fugue of the well-tempered clavier and is also found in the kyrie of mozart's requiem but themes of this type were in the air in that period and fairly recognized as general property it would be preposterous to labor too much the points involved, the more so as every now and then the practice is avenged, if we like, by some awkwardness of accent or clumsiness of declamation which results by forcing the older phrase into a newer textual association. Such things are very different from the barefaced claim Bonancini once made to having composed a certain work which, as it transpired, had been written by a minor musician living in Vienna. Then, too, in the phrase of W. McNaught, Handel did not borrow the thoughts of others, he rescued them. And it must be never forgotten that men like Bach and Handel faced deadlines unthinkable to any musician of today. Following Judas Maccabeus, Handel's fortunes rose once more, and after his conflicts with ill-will and intrigue, he was the incontestable victor. The consequence, far from rest and relaxation, was another stream of great works, not all of them, unfortunately, having become so familiar to posterity as they undoubtedly deserve to be. Oratorios like Alexander Bellus, Susanna, Joshua, Solomon, and Jephthah, treasurable as they are, are known to few, probably because they are eclipsed by the gigantic shadows cast by Messiah, Judas Maccabeus, or Israel in Egypt. In 1749 he had written Theodora, which failed. Its ill luck does not seem to have moved him to more than a kind of wisecrack to the effect that the Jews would not come to it because the story was Christian, and the ladies because it was virtuous. In the same year he composed a scene from Tobias Mollet's Outjest, parts of which he later used in his Choice of Hercules. 
For the signing of the Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle in 1745, the king demanded a showy festival, little as there was to celebrate in the termination of a war both unpopular and remote. Handel was commissioned to compose music for an ostentatious show to culminate in a grand display of fireworks in Green Park, where a vast and grotesque wooden building, surmounted by unsightly allegorical figures, had been set up. Twelve thousand people foregathered for a rehearsal of Handel's music in Vauxhall Gardens, and traffic as a result was desperately tangled. At the actual celebration everything went awry, the fireworks fizzled, and to provide a humiliating climax, the edifice in Green Park caught fire. Newman Flower tells us in a colorful account of the event that Handel had a magnificent band worthy of the occasion, forty trumpets, twenty horns, sixteen hoboys, sixteen bassoons, eight pair of kettle drums. For the first time he introduced that forgotten instrument, the serpent, into his score, but took it out again. He had for that night as fine a band as he ever conducted. Handel's contribution, indeed, was the one indisputable success of the occasion. He gave the bright and sonorous fireworks music, a kind of companion piece to the water music, the month after the Green Park fiasco for the Foundling Hospital, or the Hospital for the Maintenance and Education of Exposed and Deserted Young Children. The concert brought Handel the governorship of the institution. The Fondling Asylum was a pride and pleasure to Handel in his declining years. He presented it with a new organ, opened it himself with a performance of Messiah on May 1, 1750, when countless persons of distinction had to be turned away, since the asylum chapel accommodated only a thousand. From that time on, the master saw to it that the oratorio was sung there every year, and that the proceeds, always considerable, were donated to the hospital. Not to be behind his great associate, the artist Hogarth, who subsequently shared with Handel the governorship, donated a portrait he had painted to the hospital, raffled it off, and gave the proceeds to the asylum. The composer went one last time to Halle and arrived in Germany roland points out just at the time his greatest contemporary bach died in leipzig his own health was deteriorating though his mind remained clear and his brain active to be sure his sight had begun to trouble him yet when thomas morell in january seventeen fifty one gave him a libretto jephtha he set to work composing it at once he who had turned out the sublimities of Messiah in four weeks, and the martial grandeurs of Judas Maccabeus and even less, had, however, to break off for ten days, after the opening largo of the chorus, How dark, O Lord, are thy ways, and he painfully set down on the manuscript, I reached here on Wednesday, February 13, had to discontinue on account of the sight of my left eye. On his 66th birthday, February 23, he wrote, Feel a little better, resumed work, and set the words, Grief follows joy as night the day. Then he stopped for four months and did not complete the whole score till the end of August 1751. The last four numbers had taken him more time than he usually spent on an entire oratorio. By that time he had gone completely blind. 
Two years later he regained control of himself, played the organ at twelve oratorio productions he gave annually in Lent. He was even with the assistance of his pupil and secretary, John Christopher Smith, son of an old Halle school friend, to compose some more music and to remodel his old Italian oratorio, The Triumph of Time and Truth. He had submitted to the care of a notorious quack, the ophthalmiator Chevalier John Taylor, who then enjoyed an extensive vogue among distinguished patients, and who boasted that he had seen, on his travels, a vast variety of singular animals such as dromedaries, camels, etc., and particularly at Leipzig, where a celebrated master of music, Bach, already arrived to his eighty-eighth year, sick, received his sight by my hands. In any case, the different physicians hid nothing from their patient. His case was hopeless. He was afflicted with gutasarina. With his sight, his best source of inspiration was gone. This man, said Romain Roland, who was neither an intellectual nor a mystic, one who loved above all things light and nature, beautiful pictures, and the spectacular view of things, who lived more through his eyes than most of the German musicians, was engulfed in deepest night. From 1752 to 1759 he was overtaken by the semi-consciousness which precedes death. He had made his will in 1750, and at different times in the next nine years he added codicils to it. On April 6, 1759, he played the organ a last time at a Messiah performance, broke down in the middle of a number, recovered and improvised, it was said, with his old-time magnificence. Then he was brought home, and they put him to bed. Handel expressed a desire to be buried in Westminster Abbey, and he said, I want to die on Good Friday in the hope of rejoining the good God, my sweet Lord and Savior, on the day of his resurrection. On Saturday, April 14, 1759, the Whitehall Evening Post announced, This morning, a little before eight o'clock, died the deservedly celebrated George Frederick Handel, Esquire. And a week later, Last night, about eight o'clock, the remains of the late great Mr. Handel were deposited at the foot of the Duke of Argyll's monument in Westminster Abbey, and though he had mentioned being privately interred, yet from the respect due to so celebrated a man, the bishop, prebends, and the whole choir attended to pay the last honors due to his memory. The bishop himself performed the service. A monument is also to be erected for him, which there is no doubt but his works will even outlive. There was almost the greatest concourse of people of all ranks ever seen upon such, or indeed upon any other occasion. Nevertheless, others have testified that Handel was not buried amidst a great concourse of people. Ironically enough, the music performed at his obsequies was Dr. Croft's funeral anthem. In the poet's corner, a rather mediocre monument by L. F. Rubiac was later unveiled to his memory, under the patronage and in the presence of His Most Gracious Majesty, George III. But the lordly George Friedrich Handel might have been prouder of the monument the dying Beethoven reared to his greatness, when, pointing to Arnold's Handelian edition by his bed, he exclaimed, There lies the truth.
End of Part 4 End of George Friedrich Handel by Herbert F. Pieser